Good morning. Good morning. How are you today? I'm good. My son has his first soccer practice today. Are you excited? I am excited. You look really excited. You look like such a proud mom. I mean, I didn't have to fight with him to get out of bed because all I said was, you know what today is? And he jumped right up. And that works. That's the way to go. (laughs) Parenting hack. Bribe your children. So are you excited to get into part two of the season finale? Less excited than I am to go watch an eight-year-old soccer practice, but still excited. Okay. (laughs) Kind of... I'm less excited about the topic and more excited that, like, it has we've a got a season two, and it's a resolution oh. to the, to part one. <laughs> I'm excited about our season two. I'm, I'm glad that we're both on two very different pages right now. <laughs> so, I kind of have similar disclaimers to the beginning of the last episode, but welcome, everyone, to the Myth and Macabre podcast. Today, we are jumping into part two of our season two finale about the Boston Strangler. So if you didn't listen to last week's episode, you probably should. <laughs> we take a deep dive into the 13 victims of the Boston Strangler. We talk about differences and similarities in their cases, things that may or may not have linked them together, and some information that lends itself to some of the theories we're going to discuss in this episode. I will reiterate information that's important, but a lot of it won't get reiterated in this episode. So Mm. if you haven't listened to it, pause, go listen to it, come back when you're up, you're caught up and we will move forward from there. I also just wanted to reiterate some of the notes from the last episode just want to let everyone listening know we're jumping into the second half of a true crime podcast episode true crime podcast of a true crime episode (laughs) not a lot of supernatural or paranormal mostly just heinous crimes by heinous people and terrifying things that people can do to one another so if that's not something you're into be forewarned this episode is is a bit darker and deeper than most of our regular ones Mm -hmm. and i guess that also kind of goes without saying This is not really an episode to listen to with your kiddos in the car. There's content warning for sexual assault, which I think comes up a lot less in this one than it did in the last one. But it was part of the Boston Strangler's MO, so it will get mentioned on occasion, just so everybody is on the same page. Mm -hmm. You know what to expect. Yes. (laughs) If you know anything about the Boston Strangler, you already know what to expect. So... In episode one, we discussed the 13 women between the ages of 19 and 85 who were murdered alone in their apartments between the years of 1962 and 1964. As investigations of those murders went on, they were linked together by similarities in their crime scenes, particularly almost all of them were strangled with some kind of clothing, usually their hosiery or parts of their house coat. They were all, except one, potentially single and living alone in their homes. And notably, there were no signs of forced entry into any of their crime scenes, Mm -hmm. their homes, the crime scenes. Yes. Over the years, there have been speculation as to whether or not the Boston Strangler was a single person or whether or not it was multiple people with similar MOs, or whether it was one person and a copycat. But the 13 women we discussed in the first part of this episode were typically attributed to Albert DeSalvo as the Boston Strangler. So that's who we are going to talk about today. Okay. 
That was a lot of introduction. It was. <laughs> but it was a recap, so it's fine. It was. We don't usually do two-parters, so it's weird Recaps to recap. <laughs> Recaps are important. So Albert DeSalvo was born on September 3rd, 1931 in Chelsea, Mass., to parents Frank and Charlotte. By all accounts, his childhood was pretty miserable. His father was an alcoholic who was very physically violent with their mother, and he would bring home prostitutes to engage with them in front of his wife and children. Oh, that's this guy. I, yeah, I remember he that He seemed now. like a terrible father. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's only fitting that somebody growing up in that environment isn't going to be doing so hot. I think it's just so sad that like therapy wasn't a thing back then. Right. Like, this could have gone so differently for him. Honestly, even better child services. Like, either way, yeah. But, like, this could have just... I feel feel so bad for, for, like, baby Albert. Me too. But, I mean, not adult Albert, because he's a grown-ass man and can, you know... The, my thoughts, my <laughs> thoughts exactly. I don't make think, his own decisions. I don't think any child should have to grow up in a household like that. And I mean, what you do with your life as an adult is on you, but still pretty tragic. And it wasn't long before, at a young age, DeSalvo is torturing animals. He is shoplifting, and kind of starts getting in trouble with the law at like a really young age. Mm-hmm. So, it seems like, as far as I could find, his his kind of life of crime started as early as when he was 12 years old. He was first arrested for battery and robbery. So he beat at someone up 12? and robbed them. Yep, at 12. Okay. So they send him to the Lyman School for Boys, which is a reform school. Mm-hmm. And a few years later, after he's kind of done out his sentence i guess is the way you would refer to it graduated his program (laughs) yeah he's back to his regular life and he starts working as a delivery boy and two years later he is back at lyman school for boys after stealing a car oh so he's what like 14 he stole a car 16 um probably a little closer to 16 yeah so he was he went when he was 12 he was there for a couple of years okay he comes out and is okay for a couple of years and now he's back so he's probably about 16 so he has another stint at lyman school for boys after which he decides to join the u.s army so i i do think he was probably about 16 and he probably Mm -hmm. was about 18 when he got out Mm -hmm. so if this were a heartwarming movie, this would be the place where the story turns around, right? He joins, everything gets better. He joins the army. He has his first tour of duty, and he is honorably discharged. So nothing wrong, according to the military. He reenlists later and is once again honorably discharged, but there was a note about him maybe having been court-martialed, so... I don't think he's really on the straight and narrow. No. He might not be causing, like, enough trouble to be dishonorably discharged, but he's doing something. Yeah, that's kind of where my brain was at when I was reading it. So he moves up the ranks. He ends up being a military police sergeant with the 2nd Squadron. And eventually, once he is honorably discharged the second time, he moves to Malden, Massachusetts. Which... I should have looked up on the map, but I'm pretty sure it's not that far outside of Boston. I have no idea. So during his time in the army, he meets a woman named Imgard Beck from Germany. And in 1953, they get married. And as far as I can tell, sometime between them getting married in the beginning of the 1960s, they have two children. Mm -hmm. 
I say this because I found a newspaper article about him in 1961, which all the newspaper articles love to mention that he was the father of two children. Hmm. So he had them at that point. And a side note, in case anyone was wondering, because I had to look it up because I needed to know, his wife did remain married to him until he died. So through all of his court things, all of the accusations, his wife was there. I have my own opinions on her that I will keep to myself. I was like, hmm, um, some of this feels red flaggy and I would not be sticking around. <laughs> but just, just a little bit of a red flag. To each their own, I guess. So the first newspaper report I could find about Albert DeSalvo in Massachusetts newspapers was on March 19th, 1961, which from what we just talked about wasn't really his beginnings of the run-ins with the police, but I think it's kind of the beginnings of like his adult Mm -hmm. run-ins with the police. So he's starting to get this notoriety for not being a great guy. And in 1961, he gets arrested in East Cambridge and charged with possession of burglary tools and breaking and breaking and entering. What is a burglary tool? I think it's like lockpicks and stuff like that. Okay. That's what I was thinking, but I wasn't sure if we yes. knew exactly what that was. I didn't find actual clarification, but that's what I believe we're talking about. Okay. Fun fact. They have tools that you can get, like kits, to teach yourself how to pick locks. Despite the fact that it's illegal to carry around lock picking tools? hmm Yep. I, I know this because I worked with someone who, in his spare time, would play with his lock picking kit to learn how to pick locks. Interesting. <laughs> in my head, they would go on a mental list if anything was ever missing from Maz. Evidently, he was casing prospective homes that he was thinking about robbing by knocking on doors. We kind of mentioned this in the mm-hmm. last episode. By knocking on doors and telling them that he was a representative for a model agency and that he was looking for models. So in some cases, women were actually just like letting him into their homes to measure them. For this, Mm -hmm. like, modeling gig that didn't really exist. Mm -hmm. Which a lot of people later on will go to speculate that that's why so many of the Boston Strangler victims were in their housecoats. Makes sense. So the police arrest him for breaking and entering in East Cambridge, and they're trying to link him to 40 other house break-ins in the city that have occurred in the last couple of weeks. You said 40? 40. Yeah, 4-0. Okay. In a couple weeks. In a couple weeks. Like, like somebody's been busy. Hmm. Does he have a job? Albert DeSalvo, father of two children. I have no idea. <laughs> All the articles just talk about how he's a father of two children. I couldn't find anything about employment with him after he left the army. I would assume he's got to have some kind of income. Mm-hmm. We are talking about the 1960s and his wife sounds like she had immigrated to the United States. Mm-hmm. So... I can't imagine she's the breadwinner. No, probably not. He's got to have some kind of job. But when does he have time in a couple weeks to break into 40 I mean, separate maybe, houses? Maybe he doesn't really have a job. Maybe he's just <laughs> maybe breaking in and job. that's how he's getting money. I don't know. But police are like, this seems like it could maybe be the same person. Couldn't find a whole lot about what the end result of that arrest was, but it couldn't have been more than a slap on the wrist because on Wednesday, May 3rd, 1961, which is two months later, Mm -hmm. there's another Boston Globe article about how DeSalvo's arrested again. Good for him. Yeah, he seems like a troubled man. 
So DeSalvo sentenced to two years in the Middlesex House of Correction after being found guilty on four charges of assault and battery and two charges of attempted breaking and entering during the daytime. Okay. He really, like, I don't know if he just likes to see what he's doing. (laughs) He seems to have a reputation for, like, all this stuff with letting, getting into women's houses was all during the day, like when their husbands were Mm -hmm. at work. He seems to really be into the daytime, which also is kind of a link to the Boston Strangler murders. A lot of them right. happened during the daytime. When the sun was up. So he's charged. He's also charged with two counts of lewdness, but the drudge drops that. Why? So I'm Why? not sure. Why do we drop charges? I don't know. But it was like its own paragraph in the article I was reading. No. Worth mentioning. But I think this also kind of hints that like, He could maybe, no, so this is before the Boston Strangler murders have happened, Mm -hmm. but this is kind of also painting him in the light that he has this propensity for some kind of sexual or sexual adjacent acts. Mm -hmm. And from what I can tell from this article, he's still running this like modeling racket where he's offering women $40 an hour to model for this imaginary agency. And he's like measuring them still. And I'm just, the whole thing is just, you said $40 an hour in the sixties. That was what the news article, like like a news that wasn't even like, I read it on a random website. The news article said that that's what he was offering them. I need a conversion. I need to know. I need to know. Well, yeah, because I mean, honestly, maybe that's why the women were letting him in the house. If they're like, wow, that's a significant amount of money. Hold please. Do you have an app on your phone that just like does these conversions? No, but I should find the app. I just keep going (laughs) to the website. All right. So if in 19, you said 61? 61, yeah. 61, I purchased an item for $40. Then in the year 2023, it would be $402.46. Okay, so like not a ton, but still a significant amount. Like an hour? I would do that an hour. I guess. Like, I don't even make $40 an hour right now. (laughs) That's true. Now I have questions. No wonder they're letting it. For that much, it would be irresponsible to say no. I just hit my microphone. Sorry, everybody. So I couldn't find a ton of information about how long that sentence goes at the Middlesex House of Corrections. But they believe, if, if they are to believe that DeSalvo is the Boston Strangler, it means that, like, a year and a month-ish later, he's back out on the streets. Right. So he just got a slap on the wrist, if anything. Really. And I mean, I don't want anybody to romanticize any serial killers, but he's not like a bad looking dude. Like he looks like he is maybe of Italian descent. He's got like nicely done hair. His face is clean shaven. So like he looks like a, like a stand-up guy he does and i think that might be part of why he's like getting slaps on the wrist is because he's Mm -hmm. not like a super sketchy villainous looking dude Hmm. but i've heard how people like get about ted bundy and i'm just like well no don't romanticize serial killers no but while all the Boston strangling murders are going on, newspapers don't have any reports about DeSalvo getting arrested like during this time so Maybe he was the Boston Strangler. It's hard to know. And it's pretty quiet from this news article about the Middlesex House of Corrections and his sentencing pretty much until he's apprehended in 1964. Hmm. 
So if you'll recall from the first episode, the Boston Strangler's final victim was found on January of 1964. So... Between then and October of 64, when he is apprehended, we've got about 10 months going on. And after that, at, in October, he's back in the news for another crime that he's committed. It doesn't have anything to do with the Boston Strangler. What he's been doing is on October 27th of 1964, he poses as a motorist with car trouble in Bridgewater and knocks on someone's door and he's trying to convince them to let him into the house. And the man that lives there gets suspicious and shoots at him. Oh. This man later goes on to be the Brockton police chief. Different story. Okay. But (laughs) later that same day, he enters a woman's home in East Cambridge posing as a detective. Now, I don't know if he's posing as like a detective about the Boston Strangler, which would make this whole thing feel really sinister, but he's posing as a detective. I mean, either way, like if you're going around killing people and then pretending to be a detective, like, no. Yeah, I agree. Just don't do that. (laughs) So he gets into this woman's house. He ties her to the bed. He sexually assaults her. And instead of strangling her, he leaves. And according to the woman, he's like mumbling that he's sorry as he leaves, which I'm is confused. super weird. Like, I'm like, was he interrupted? Like, is this going back to like the schizophrenic thing? That, like, I wouldn't the... think he was like suddenly having a change of consciousness. Like, I don't know. But she saw him. She's able to give police a complete description. She's like, yeah, like. Like, I, yeah, I saw him. Please give me a lineup. I will. I will. Let so you know. and she does. She identifies him as Robert DeSalvo. Now he's been on the police's radar before. So when she's describing him, they know who she's talking about. Did you say Robert DeSalvo? I did because I can't read. Okay. <laughs> it's Albert DeSalvo. So I know that sometimes I can't hear. So I, I literally sure. have been wanting to call him Robert for like a week now. I don't know. I don't like Albert is not a name my brain thinks of. Robert is. But Albert, it's Albert. Just every time I hear Albert, I think Albert Fish. We just, we don't need to go there, but. <laughs> That's a different episode. <laughs> Albert DeSalvo. So they know him. They're like, we know who this guy is. So they take him in. He has his bail set at $8,000, which if your converter is right, that's probably like Mm $80,000 in today money. Sounds about right. And he pleads innocent to his charges, which were breaking and entering in the daytime with the, so is that like a separate charge from breaking and entering is breaking and entering in the daytime? Like a, I don't know, but it gets like pointed (laughs) out a lot. So maybe that's weird. Yeah. So he gets uh, charged with breaking and entering in the daytime with intent to commit a felony and with assault and battery with a dangerous weapon, because allegedly he held her at knife point. Mm-hmm. So he seems to be getting some of his comeuppance. And here it only takes a couple of days before he is ordered to undergo psychiatric observation. Good. Four separate New England states are looking to charge him. Four? Being the green man. So... The green the man. Yes. So the green man, who is also known as the measuring man. Wait, hold on. Is this like Charlie Day? <laughs> it's always sunny in Philadelphia. I haven't seen that, so I don't know. <laughs> You're laughing at a joke I don't get. I'm sorry. It's so funny. So the green man, or also called the measuring man, is what we were talking about. This guy that goes around 
offering to measure women for these modeling jobs that don't exist. And they want to charge him not for, like, he wasn't killing all of these women, but mm-hmm. it's like breaking and entering base in the daytime. In the daytime. <laughs> so, but he's wanted in Connecticut, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island. Oh. So, I think the green man could kind of be, like, his own episode, but it's going on at the same time as the Boston Strangler. Mm-hmm. And now they're like... Okay, so that kind of, like, explains why he's a little more all over the place than, like, just Boston. That, I thought, the same but thing. But also, like, why are we not killing people in these other states? Why are we only killing people in the Boston area? I don't entirely know. Okay. Oh, and fun fact, he's called the Green Man because he wears green pants. It's not like Charlie Day and it's always sunny it's in Philadelphia. It's not that exciting. It's not as fun as that. So I don't know if like he was the only person doing this, if this was like a common con for the time. Like it feels weirdly specific, but then to also be wanted in four states. Granted, if you're not familiar with the New England area, we're all on top of each other. It only takes like two hours to drive from Rhode Island to New Hampshire. So maybe, I don't know. So they link him to the green man situation. And that means that now he's about to get charged for sexual attacks on at least a dozen housewives in Massachusetts. Well, good. Yes. So he wasn't like with the green man stuff. He wasn't like murdering them. He was just raping people. Not really any better other than that those people are at least still alive. But they think they've caught their man. And they kind of, I think I I told the story a touch out of order. So the way that they catch him, by the way, is they get this idea that it's him. They tail him. They keep surveillance on him. Mm -hmm. They find him at a woman's house trying to get in. And then there's like a foot chase, which totally makes me think of like silly cop movies. Mm -hmm. But there's like a foot chase and ultimately he's arrested. He gets charged with being the green man and in Framingham, the police want to charge him with gagging and attacking a woman the year prior. Hmm. Really seems slow breaking and entering in the daytime. That's where I put the note about that in my notes in case anyone was wondering. (laughs) So now, even now, no one has linked him to the Boston Strangler, though. Mm-hmm. They're like, we've caught the green man. But awesome. they still, the Boston Strangler has not been caught yet. We're moving in the right direction. But we're moving in the right direction. So it's not until late 1965 when DeSalvo allegedly confesses to fellow inmate George Nasser that he's responsible for the 13 Boston Strangler murderers. So George Nassar informs his attorney and the attorney decides he wants to take on DeSalvo's case. And with that kind of confession, he skyrockets to the prime suspect of the Boston Strangler murders because... Did anybody talk to Albert after this inmate went to his attorney? In terms of what? I mean, probably yes, but... Oh, like, did he confess to the officers? Oh, yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, no. Because I'm like, are we taking an inmate's word for this? Because, no. No, (laughs) so he does. 
I have a quick side note in my notes here about George Nasser, just before we kind of move on from him. Uh, if he sounds familiar, he is also an infamous murder. In May of 1948, he was part of a robbery spree, which resulted in at least one person dying and an automobile being stolen. And then later he was a suspect to another murder. And he was sentenced to life in prison, which is when he meets DeSalvo. Mm -hmm. So we have a murderer snitching on a murderer. Yeah. And so, oh, because I can't read things in order. My brain is just not there. That's fine. Um, George Nassar had, for the first murder, gotten sentenced to, like, prison time. And then he got out in early 1961. And then gets brought back in later for the next Mm -hmm. string of murders. So George Nassar is also out among the public during the time of the Boston Strangler. Okay. Which is maybe important. Maybe. So anyway, (laughs) he's important to some theories that the Boston Strangler was maybe more than one person. Okay. That makes sense. So DeSalvo confesses to, uh, to George Nassar and... With his upcoming trial approaching, he has a psychiatric evaluation where he confesses to the psychiatrist that he's the Boston Strangler. And this is kind of off-putting to people because, or not off-putting, but kind of like, ugh, it's gotta be him. Because he starts confessing details to the crimes that were never released to the public. Mm -hmm. So not all of the details that he's giving the police detectives are spot on. And that is a point of contention where people who pull apart his case are like, well, they're not actually the right details. But the police department is like, even though those details were wrong, there's still no way he could have known some of these other ones. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm trying to think of the best way to say this sensitively. So it's kind of like if someone were to come to you and be like, hey, what did you do like three Thursdays ago? And then you kind of run through your day, but you don't get all the details right. But like you still have the general gist of it, like the idea of what you did that day. Yeah. I feel like I know that it's like an important moment for these murderers and that they remember a lot of details, but also it's just another day to them. Well, yeah. And some people like to tear apart like, well, oh, he said that the chair was, you know, blue, but it was actually brown. And it's like, but he wasn't paying attention to the chair. Like that's not what he was there for. Yeah. One of the biggest details that he got wrong that people like to pick apart was that he claimed that he manually strangled Mary Sullivan, the last victim, Mm -hmm. when she was strangled with a ligature. So there's a little bit of doubt, but the police are like, how else would he have known some of these other details? Like, it just doesn't make sense. Maybe he, like, manually strangled her with the ligatures around her neck? I don't know. (laughs) So, like, maybe he did? Yeah. So I think people, if you want to prove something is wrong, you're going to find any detail to pick apart Mm -hmm. anyway. But I think for the police department, this was enough to go on. So, oh, but the big thing, the bigger problem than him getting details incorrect here and there is that there's actually no physical evidence that substantiates his confession. Mm -hmm. So they want to try him with something... And they don't know if he's actually the Boston Strangler, but they want to keep him off the streets for the rest of his life. So they try him on charges for some older crimes. And he gets sentenced to life in prison in January of 1967 for robbery and sexual offenses. So the end result is still the same, but they don't have physical evidence tying him to the Boston Strangler murders. So Mm -hmm. they can't actually pin them on him. Right. And... 
people are kind of back and forth about it. I'll talk a little bit about the skepticism in a couple of minutes, but people, not everybody's buying it, but he's behind bars now. And of course, this doesn't end up being the last we hear about Albert DeSalvo. In February of that same year, so about a month after he was sentenced, he and two of his fellow inmates break out of, so they're at the Bridgewater State Hospital, which I had to look up. It's not really a hospital. It's like an umbrella term for this facility that has like a bunch of other facilities in it. Is it it like a psychiatric kind of? It has a psychiatric ward, but it also has like a minimum security prison. It has like a center for alcoholics and a center for like sexual deviants. So just everything that he is. Yeah, he fits well, (laughs) except that he could break out. So I think he was kind of in the minimum security prison side of things and he's broken out. And he turns himself in, like, a day later. But it becomes, like, a full-scale manhunt. Like, they're like, we cannot let this guy But then he turns out. himself in. But then he ends up turning himself in. And he... Like, did he, he just walk into the police station and go, just kidding, guys, can you take me back? Kind of, like, basically. Like, he claimed that he was trying to make a statement on the treatment of prisoners. I'm very sorry, but if you're in prison, I'm not super concerned with your treatment. Do you think this kind of leads back to him potentially having some kind of, like mental issues mm-hmm. but yeah no he enjoyed it down the town enjoyed a manhunt and then turned himself back in mm-hmm. so they decide that he's not allowed to be at the minimum security prison anymore oh no way so they move him to the <laughs> maximum security prison in walpole what's called walpole state prison i'm assuming it's in walpole that would make sense so he stays there for six years without much of an issue at which point he is found stabbed to death in the infirmary. Oh. And to this day, no one knows who killed Albert DeSalvo. Mm-hmm. I'm sure no one knows. No one's talking. <laughs> so when it comes to Albert DeSalvo being the Boston Strangler, there's a lot of skepticism, mostly among investigative journalists, but also doctors and kind of a lot of other people. But... The big couple of things that are provide some skepticism to the situation was so like his attorney believed that he was the killer, but a lot of people as they dive in, they don't think it can be the work of a single person, like between the changes in the MOs, the changes mm-hmm. in the locations, things like that. In 1968, the doctor who had like done some work with him, he was a medical director at Bridgewater State Hospital. He doesn't think that DeSalvo did it at all. Like, as the doctor who took care of him. (laughs) He believes that DeSalvo had this, like, need and desire to be recognized and that he would admit to basically any crime if it meant people would know who he was. I mean, I know that there are people out there like that. But like you said, that he got most of the details that weren't released right. So that... So unless yeah, like, this was, is, I'm going there next. Oh, because I was gonna, okay. <laughs> I was going to say, is, was Nasser the one that did it and fed him the information? Well, and so like... <laughs> so the doctor's like, I don't think he did it. And one of the other inmates in the prison came forward saying, I saw someone like another inmate didn't put him by name, but he said I saw another inmate coaching him on details of these crimes. Mm-hmm. So maybe the reason why the details aren't entirely accurate is because somebody told them to him and he forgot or like and just made up he whatever. kind of made something up. 
So that kind of leads to the theory about George Nasser. Now, I will say George Nasser has always denied his involvement in the murders. In a 1999 interview, he said that the speculation around him potentially having something to do with them ruined his chances of parole. That's why he's been in prison his whole life. Was he, he, what was his sentence for he, the second time he was in? He was there for life in prison. Oh. But he, I think he had the chance for parole, and he said that all the speculation completely ruined it. I don't know if it was that. He said that he's, quote, been convicted under the table for the crimes of the Boston Strangler. Also, if 1999 feels really recent, he is actually still in jail right now. He's in his 90s, but he is still in jail. Okay. Yeah, you said that his first crime was, what, like 1948? Something like that. He was born in 1931. Yeah. Yeah. I think Gary Nasser was like a year or two after, like born a year or two after Mm. um, DeSalvo. Yeah, that makes sense. So... The theory is that George Nassar, the other murderer that we mentioned, was actually the Boston Strangler. And because Albert DeSalvo was so desperate for attention, the theory is that he fed details to DeSalvo so that DeSalvo could claim to be the murderer and get the notoriety for being the murderer. And then Nassar would tell his lawyer and get the reward for figuring out or turning in the Boston Strangler and that they would split the reward money so that DeSalvo's wife and children would have funds. Huh? Yeah. (laughs) So I don't necessarily think that the idea of George Nassar being the Boston Strangler or them both committing murders and kind of copycatting each other or kind of whatever theory there, I don't think is entirely unreasonable. They Mm -hmm. were both... Did they have any connection to each other, like, outside? Not that I could find. But, like, they're both career criminals, basically. So I wouldn't... To me, like, if that's a speculation that someone has, that would be fine. This, like, elaborate plot in prison feels... No. Less fine to me. So while there's no physical evidence to link Albert DeSalvo to any of the Boston Strangler murderers, things change on July 11th, 2013. So at this point, Albert DeSalvo has been dead for a while, mm-hmm. but they are able to police Boston police department announces that they have found DNA evidence that links DeSalvo to the murder of Mary Sullivan who was so the, the last, last victim. And from what I understand, the way it works is there is this DNA strain that is passed down paternally mm-hmm. through men. And like it's part of like the, the Y DNA. I don't know what about DNA. Thing. So yeah. bear with me. But it's passed down through the male line and it doesn't change much mm-hmm. from generation to generation. So I'm assuming, I think the public has kind of assumed that the evidence that they did not disclose publicly back when they found Mary Sullivan's body was bodily fluids. Mm -hmm. And as DNA testing got better and better, they decided to test this saved sample. And in 2003, so about 10 years before they were able to positively link them, they were able to determine that the DNA sample from Mary's body was a near certain match for DeSalvo's nephew mm-hmm. via this 
Okay. This gene that goes through patriarchal lines. So it didn't point to his nephew as being the culprit. Right. But it was like, okay, it's somebody in this it is, family. It's a man in the family. Yes. So they end up exhuming Albert DeSalvo and DNA testing him, at which point they are able to positively match Okay. The DNA. Because I was going to say, like, did we test his remains also? We because, did, yeah. You know, infidelity and adoption and, like, all these other things could play a role in it. <laughs> nope. They dug him up and tested him directly. Okay. So on July 19th, 2013, they publicly announced that Albert DeSalvo was responsible for the killing of Mary Sullivan and that if she was linked to the Boston Strangler murderers, the likelihood of him being the Boston Strangler is high. Mm-hmm. So not really proof that he killed all 13 women, but definitely proof that he killed, that one. he killed one of them. So now this is kind of from here. This is kind of the, the end of the history of it all. But from here, people have tons of speculation. There are people who think that there was a copycat going. There are people that think that, Whoever committed the murders in Boston that first summer was the only Boston Strangler and that the people who did, or the whoever murdered the people afterwards outside of Boston the following year were just copycat. Mm-hmm. And I think like, so George Nassar says he has nothing to do with it. He said he was not the Boston Strangler. Nobody really knows. Right. But the lack of evidence. So... I think for me, one of the interesting things is some of the sites where they found fingerprints. I'm assuming they were never able to link to DeSalvo because if he's been in and out of the police stations being arrested for all kinds of stuff, they would have his fingerprints. Right. And I don't know whatever actually ended up like being the result of that. Mm-hmm. Because but, again, like, how do you know that was the murderer's fingerprints? That's very true. Like, it, she could have had a party. She could have had a friend over. She could have gone on a date that walked her to her door. Yep. (laughs) And it seems like as time went on, like the idea that all these women were connected to hospitals seemed to kind of get pushed by the wayside. Couldn't find anything about Albert DeSalvo or George Nasser having links to hospitals. Mm -hmm. But I think ultimately at the end of the day, (laughs) we know that DeSalvo was involved with at least one of them. And the murders did seem to stop in 1964. So whether it was Albert Salvo, whether it was George Nasser, whether it was someone else entirely, I think there's a good chance that whoever committed those just disgusting and heinous acts likely got caught for something Mm -hmm. and ended up in jail. Or died. Or died, but... I think to me it was really interesting that like there was kind of a cutoff date for when it all ended. Mm-hmm. And it was right around the time that both of those men got put back in jail, yeah. which to me says that it was probably one of them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that is what I have for Albert DeSalvo and the Boston Strangler. Hmm. I just wish that the families had like a definitive answer. I completely agree. Like, I'm glad that one family got, like, that closure, but the other 12. Yeah, and I mean, it's probably slightly different for some of the victims that were older in age. But, like, to me, it was a very 
sobering realization that George Nasser, who is like I said about a year either older or younger than Robert or than Albert DeSalvo, mm-hmm. he's still alive. So like if Albert DeSalvo hadn't been stabbed in prison, he could granted he would be like in his 90s, mm-hmm. so maybe he wouldn't still be alive just by way of old age, but like this is not so far removed from our history that like the the victim that was 19 her family is probably still alive at least mm-hmm. some of it like one of the other girls that was in her mid 20s like her family is probably still around and they don't have any closure for what happened mm-hmm. and like like i said i mean i think all of the families deserve closure but it was really kind of a weird realization that like for some of especially the younger victims like their families are still alive and like around mm-hmm. They probably still have siblings who, who still don't have answers to what happened. Yeah. But, yeah. That's sad. I agree. So, I know this was kind of another long episode, but if you've all made it this far, I want to thank everybody for listening to season two of Myth and Macabre. We are very excited to be able to move forward and to have brought you a second season. We're very excited for things we have in the pipeline for season three. We were just talking about some of them before we started recording this. I think it's going to be awesome. I'm excited. As of right now, I think we're planning on trying to do some episodes between this season and the upcoming season, but season three is probably going to be back in the fall, Mm -hmm. I think. We've got some analytics we're going to do. We've got some experience now that we've done a couple of seasons under our belt, so we're going to try and make season three the best season it's been yet and kind of tweak and perfect everything so that it's make a few changes yeah but in a good way in a good way (laughs) make some good changes so we will likely not be back with a full episode until fall of this year but i think we're going to try and do some some bonus stuff in the middle so Mm -hmm. that you guys aren't hanging for that long without us but yeah i'm looking forward to thank you all for listening and i'm looking forward to season three where we can give you some more spooky and creepy stories and places worth knowing about. I'm excited. I already have like one of my episodes for next season done. And I can't wait. I'm, I'm so, so excited. excited. I think we're, uh, we're going to have some good stuff in store. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's a wrap for season two. All right. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Do your bye. Bye. Oh, we're not doing an outro. Bye. <laughs>